0: It's time for Delmarva Today with your host, Don Rush.
1: We are now on the threshold of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attack on the United States. A new memoir has just been released by the fire chief who was first on the scene of the World Trade Center attack 20 years ago. Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Mike O'Loughlin reporting. The book is entitled Ordinary Heroes, written by Fire Chief Joseph Pfeiffer of the Fire Department of New York City. It chronicles the brutality of that day and the days, weeks, and months that followed. Yet perhaps more importantly, it is a reflection on the lives of first responders, firefighters of course in particular, ready always to come to society's rescue day and night. Joining us this morning on the phone is the author, Joseph Pfeiffer. Good morning, Chief Pfeiffer. Uh, good morning. Before we get into uh, some uh, questions regarding your memoir, I, w- I was wondering if you if you would uh, reflect a bit on the withdrawal of um, the American forces finally from Afghanistan, and and in particular, given your experience in crisis situations, on the evacuation itself.
2: I I think about our our military. Women and men often, and I'm so grateful for for what they have done, um, risking their lives and, in many cases, um, losing their lives. I I think their their presence early on made made a difference. It gave us time um, so we can prepare. So uh, I I am. Entirely um, grateful for for the service and, and what they do for us.
1: Let's then get into the uh, into the book itself. Um, again, part of the descriptor is that you were first on the scene. I, I wonder if you could give us some sense of, of of the significance of that, particularly in your memory of that day, uh, but also given the, the twenty year time period to reflect on it. <laughs>
2: it's it's interesting you never no one ever expects that they would be part of history and you don't get to pick that history chooses um, chooses us and that day they, they chose us who we were standing at an ordinary a routine uh, emergency in the street when we heard at 8 46 a plane coming overhead and it was racing literally down the Hudson River at a low altitude. And I saw the, the first plane, American Airlines Flight 11, aim and crash into the, the World Trade Center.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by the, um, once again, the reminder of, of how many people died I think the figure you cited is uh, 2,753 dead, and 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 most poignantly, of course, the loss of your your brother Kevin, and then uh, the greatest loss in American history of of firefighters themselves, 342. I wonder if you could speak to to that loss, uh, but also as you point out, you saved thousands of lives as well.
2: It, it was a tremendous loss, and. And uh, the, the number you quoted was just at the World Trade Center. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that day we would lose 2,977 people. Um, as you mentioned, the, the, laws, the largest loss of life in, in a single day. Um, and in New York, we lost 343 firefighters, mm-hmm. uh, a number that is unimaginable what it meant is that everybody in the FDNY knew somebody that died that day or multiple people. Um, and they would each morning or evening they would announce, um, who who was lost and it would be dozens of names and we would just know so many, uh, on that list. And that went on day after day, um, for for just too long of a period of time.
1: Yeah, at I, I, um, at several points in in your in your book, uh, you you talk about the community of firefighters and, and and the the stories at the firehouse, and in particular, I was touched by your observations about the metal plaques that are up there with each firefighter's name, essentially for. For for eternity, and I was reminded about the, the It reminded me of the Vietnam War memorial. In, in effect, I wonder yeah. if you could speak. You could speak to that.
2: There's something about having a person's name um, that was lost uh, in service, whether it's a first responder, a firefighter, um, a military person. Um, the, the Don Memorial, I, I can remember going to it and, and, uh, and a very solemn time of the, the crowd gets quiet when they walk through, uh, through that. And the same thing at the 9-11 Memorial Plaza, where the names are inscribed of, of all those that died that day on, uh. On on granite that 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 uh, surrounds the, the reflective pools, which is the f- footprints of the uh, original towers, and in the firehouse we have the plaques of those that died line of duty, and I think the names represent stories, mm-hmm. and certainly I did that with my memoir, of of telling telling stories. So for the, for the next generation to learn, it's not simply the dates and the times and what took place of planes crashing and towers collapsing. It's the stories of real people that ran into danger or stayed in danger to, to, to help others.
1: Hence the title, Ordinary Heroes, for sure. The um, The enormity of the... Of the tragedy. I, um, you speak um, again uh, several times, I think, in the text about uh, your faith, um, and then actually you, you, you considered uh, the priesthood at one point in time. I, I, I wonder um, did ever in this whole experience, uh, to what extent did it test your faith in terms of again, as I say, the enormity of the tragedy? How, how could this happen?
2: I, I think it's an a number of examples um, but uh, my faith and and um, and <laughs> wanting to be a priest at one mm-hmm. point uh, before the fire department
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, allowed me to observe things so in the lobby of the North Tower we had our fire department chaplain there Father Michael judge mm-hmm. and, and 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 Father Judge would normally show up at a big fire and they give us a little wink, um, like Chief, you're doing okay. A little, and a, and a, a little Irish smile. <laughs> uh, but that day, he was in the lobby with me, um, only a, a little distance away from the command post, and there was no sm- smile. And I could see his lips moving. It was. A physical prayer, um, an intense pray- praying. I, I, I think it would be similar to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking God for this event to pass because it was going to be terrible. And, um, and then moments later I would find him at my seat where I removed his white collar and checked for a pulse, and at that point, he was gone because he got he got hit by some of the debris from the collapse of the, of the south tower, and, and while we were in the north tower.
1: That's quite quite terrible terrible loss in, in, in that uh, situation. The um, I'm sorry. Yes, please.
2: Yeah, and and what is. Kind of strange. The day before, he was at a ceremony dedicating a hundred-year anniversary in the firehouse in the Bronx, and he gave a homily, saying that you you never know um, what will happen. God chooses, and what we do is we put one foot in front of the other, and we get on and we get on the rig, not knowing uh, what lies in front of us. So it, it was. Somewhat
1: prophetic in his in his homily the day before. Yeah, I was curious that also just uh, the um, how how do you avoid panic? I mean, the, the again, as I say, the, the, the kind of enormity of, of what you were facing. Uh, I wonder if you could give us some insight into how first responders, in this case, particularly firefighters, um, gear up and and face these these calamities
2: we gear up, um, based on experience that helps, but we never had an experience of a, yeah. like, like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what I call deliberate thinking. Um, there, there's two ways we, we, we can make decisions. One is, is that intuitive gut feeling and that's important. And then there's this analytical where we are sitting behind a desk and we could analyze all the data. Mm-hmm. Um, but between the two, there's this deliberate thought what do i need to do in the moment hmm. and i use that type of decision making along with some some gut decision making yes um, yes that uh, during during the, the the attacks and i i saw our firefighters very deliberately come in asking chief what can i do what do you want me to do? and then I gave them the orders to to evacuate and and, and to rescue,
1: yes, I mean that that what came through in in your book uh, the, the the effort to coordinate uh, the various uh, fire departments coming in um to to deal with the with the, the situation. We are in great debt for your sacrifice and and your comprehension of nine eleven We have been oh, speaking with oh, yes, please.
2: Thank you, Mike. I, I, I appreciate it.
1: Yes, you're, you're welcome. Thanks very much. We've been speaking with Chief Joseph Pfeiffer of the New York City Fire Department in his book, Ordinary Heroes, a Memoir of 9-11. This is Michael Lachlan for Delmarva Public Radio. Thank you for listening.
0: There's a new novel out that explores the African-American experience in a unique way. Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Don Rush. The novel is entitled The Other Black Girl by Zakia Dalila Harris and explores the nuances of race through Nella Rogers, who works for a publishing company. After being the lone African-American woman in the office, in comes Hazel Mae McCall, The Other Black Girl. And We have the author on this morning. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me on, Don.
0: So, and reading, by the way, some of your uh, interviews um, seem to have written this book in part to crack this illusion of a, a post racial society. Tell me a little bit about what your thinking is in terms of particular questions that eventually arise in this book.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. In the other black girl, I was really intent on kind of talking about those less obvious uh, forms of racism that black people experience moving throughout the world in a time, in a society where. Um, we are having these new conversations about what diversity means. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, black people are getting a chance to, to share their thoughts more widely with social media and with what we have on TV and in movies and in music. But at the same time, um, I also see uh, the flip side of this. Uh, resulting in black people kind of being commodified. And so I really wanted to explore where that line begins and ends, especially um, as it pertains to Nella and Hazel, who are the two only black people working at Wagner Books at this very white corporate uh, publishing house.
0: I want to turn to a scene in which uh, Nella Rogers is sharply confronted with a white author, Colin Franklin, in his book, Needles and Pens, and the stereotyping of the African-American character in it, uh, because it seems to symbolize the dilemma that she's facing in terms of trying to crack some of these. I mean, I think there's a line in the book where it says, it felt like a collection of tropes, all of them unflattering. Describe that scene for me and and how that draws out, because she seems to be bunching, hitting up against, I guess, what one could call a color line in, the, in that office.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, um as as you mentioned nella um has to kind of give this feedback to this white author, uh, who i also add is a, a best-selling author who who really keeps the lights on at Wagner Books. Um, a lot of his books have been turned into to movies and other kinds of things, and so uh, there's a lot writing on this. And she feels that her Tricia, who is this black character that Colin has written in this book that is uh, supposed to be about um, a fictional kind of account of what the opioid epidemic does to a particular town, um, um, and the black character he's written is uh, caricature, is, is flat, and feels like this amalgamation of stereotypes that Nella's really uncomfortable with. Um, and he asks her, um, you know, uh, what, what specifically are you uncomfortable about? And in this meeting where it's them and also Nella's white uh, female boss, Vera, um, she kind of has to try to figure out what exactly it is. And, um, and she says, eventually, it's, it's just a feeling. And... I really wanted to kind of comment on how hard it is sometimes to put your finger on that feeling. Um, You know, I know as a black woman, when I've experienced a microaggression or when someone has said something that just rubbed me the wrong way, I can just tell where it's coming from usually. And it's hard to really convey that to a white man like Colin who... Um, maybe hasn't been told these kinds of things to his face because of his power. Um, But besides just what's happening in that scene, there's also the internal conflict Nella feels of being the only one. She feels like she has to be the one to, to tell him, which is a responsibility that not every black person wants. Um, even day-to-day, whether or not they wanna be that person changes because it can be a lot to feel like you have to represent the entire black experience. So yeah, there's there's that internal conflict, this responsibility of I don't wanna be the black person who doesn't say something, but then also when she does say something, uh, it backfires, I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, well then in comes Hazel. Describe for me um, the first impressions that, that uh, Nella has of her. And how that changes over time because she on the one hand she sees herself she sees hazel as as an ally but then something happens in that process and realizes there's something else going on in terms of how hazel is approaching the the job and the environment that she's operating in
3: hazel is at first to Nella this beautiful uh beacon of blackness that nella does not have at work um for most of her time at wagner books nella has been kind of carefully fitting herself into the box that um, Wagner books has put her in that her own existence as a black woman who's navigated mostly white spaces for most of her life. Uh, all of those spaces have put her in. So when Hazel comes in, she's like, this is amazing. She has natural hair. Um, I have natural hair. We can commiserate over all of the white people in the office who just don't get it. Um, and at first it seems to be that way, but there are these, Things going on with Hazel uh, that I won't go too much into, but essentially the, Nella starts to question whether or not Hazel is there for her or Hazel is there for herself in terms of workplace politics and, and how she handles other conflicts with, with her white colleagues. And so it quickly moves from Nella feeling this uh, kinship to feeling this enemieship and feeling like she might eventually become obsolete, and it's, it's horrifying to, to think that someone who she assumed would be her friend because they both kind of get it, you know, um, ultimately that's that's not the case in this book.
0: Well, when I looked at Hazel, um, it, it's almost as if there was a, a compromise that to, to, needed to get ahead. In other words, she would say certainly certain things, but she would mm-hmm. smooth them over in order to move ahead. Um, and she has no uh, issue at all in this book uh, with that kind of sort of smooth compromise, uh, and at the same time, she doesn't seem as if she is particularly betraying, um, uh, Afri- mm-hmm. being her, her being African American.
3: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing too. I mean, uh, code switching is a big part of this book because Nella's version of code switching, um, and the way she's moved throughout the world, um, is very different from the way Hazel code switches and where they draw the line of what selling out versus code switching is, um, is, also really important because, again, Nella assumes that they will have the same sense of what's right and what the best way to handle the Colin situation is, for example. Um, but that's not the case. Hazel, that's exactly right. Hazel has her own kind of way of doing things that arguably isn't that unlike Nella. It's maybe smarter than the way Nella is doing things, but that's, again, that depends on who, who you're talking to.
0: I'm not going to get into some of the backstory here, except that um, it, one of the things that struck me about Hazel is that um, she may very well be making these compromises to create inroads that they, she can then exploit later. It, do you think that's what she's looking at, that she will compromise at this moment, do these things, but after she mm. moves ahead further and further, she can make changes um, and then sort of getting along and then being able to make that change? I mean, is that part of her character? or Absolutely. Does she see...
3: mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, that's absolutely the point. And, and, and Hazel, again, she thinks that the ends justify the means um, in the sense that, right, if I can make these kind of concessions, um, if I can make everyone love me now, it'll be a lot easier for A, me to move up in the ranks and B, to bring in other black people into the space that is so white. And that's something Nella's also been hoping to do too, but her way is not as fast, and, and also weighs on her a lot more than, than Hazel.
0: One of the quotes uh, that uh, is in there is, uh, it says, uh, how can we truly fix any of these stereotypes, those problems, if we're not truly feeling all of the real things the world is throwing at us? Who are we as a people if we're not, and then Hazel jumps in, if we're not suffering? What about that concept of suffering? I mean, it is Hazel suffering.
3: Yeah, I mean, while writing that line and a lot of that scene, I was thinking about what it is that makes me black. Like what makes me a black woman? um, What ties my experience to the experience of another black woman who has maybe didn't grow up like I did in Connecticut, maybe grew up in Harlem like Hazel did. Um, and I do feel like at the end of the day, the thing that often unites us is fighting to every day be seen, be heard. And it's, you know, it's not the most positive thing. Um, and It's not the only thing that connects us, but I do think that uh, collective struggle is really essential. Um, and so I really imagined um, with Nell and hazel um this kind of push pull between whether or not that's right is that right that that's the thing that um keeps us that makes us black is that the only thing um and what is the answer to that question those are those are things i was absolutely thinking about and and i think hazel with um i'm I'm tiptoeing around spoilers but i i don't think um hazel's necessarily Uh, feeling as much as weighed down as Nella is and does it matter that she's not if she is able to achieve all of these things in the workplace if she is able to make it more diverse if she is if she is able to be the black editor Um, I don't know but these are all hard questions that I'm hoping readers will will talk about and and argue about and debate, because I think that's really important in terms of bringing about progress and, and really making conscientious efforts toward diversity in, in all spaces, not just in publishing.
0: Now, the other character almost in the book is the use of hair. Um, I think uh, the cream, I think, is smoothed out, which has its own implications. Uh, tell me that a little bit about how you decided to particularly focus in on it, because that that is an element that, that obviously is central to this story itself but beyond the plot itself it's part it's almost like a character in and of itself
3: yeah i spend i spend so much time on my (laughs) hair um as a young person um my earliest memories of spending time with my mom was her braiding my hair um us watching tv and her um, pulling on my scalp (laughs) and me being in pain and and but also knowing that this is something that my mom had to go through with her mom and my grandma had to go through with her mom. So it it feels like to me, that's another thing I mentioned. The the collective struggle is something that unites us. I also think hair unites specifically black women. And it also can divide us because our hair is political. Our hair is often, um, kind of conflated and, 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 People make presumptions about us because of our hair. Um, historically, um, certain kinds of hair have been favored over others. And so all of those things um, felt really important to kind of sew into this split because I knew, even when I first started writing, that that would be the thing that Drew Nella to Hazel. It was their natural hair because even though Hazel grew up in Harlem and she's hip and she's really cool and and down, and Nella grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut. They both know what it's like to be black women with natural hair, um, and they know that about the stigmas. They know about hair grease, and they know how hard it can be to find your the right hairdresser. All of those things are things that just kind of show Hazel. Or, I'm sorry, show Nella. That she and Hazel are kind of approaching Wagner books from similar viewpoints in a way, Of course, that's not the case, <laughs> um, But it's, it's the the thing that really starts the book off when Noah's smelling the, the, hair, and the uh, hair grease in the cubicle. it's It's the catalyst, if you will.
0: Now, I understand that uh, it's been picked up by Hulu. Is that right?
3: Yes, yep.
0: Any actors uh, you got for either of these yet, or or, or any favorites or, or <laughs> you just know, briefly?
3: It's still a little early, but I I mean, I imagine Kiki Palmer, I think she'd be amazing as either of the characters, Nella or Hazel. Um, but I'm also thinking it would be cool to have new talent to play the characters, but I will say Angela Bassett, like, would be a dream, just <laughs> <laughs> as Kendra Ray or Diana.
0: Okay. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Zakiya Dalila Harris. She's author of a new novel called The Other Black Girl, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us this morning.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Take care.
0: Take care. This has been Marva Today. I'm Don Rush. Thanks for listening.
4: The human being is only a reed, the most feeble in nature, but he is a thinking reed. It isn't necessary for the entire universe to arm itself in order to crush him. A whiff of vapor, a taste of water suffices to kill him. But when the universe crushes him, The human being becomes still more noble than that which kills him because he knows that he is dying and the universe has no idea of the advantage it has over him. Blaise Pascal in Les Pensées. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. Blaise Pascal, the great 17th century French philosopher, went on to develop a theory of the mind-body relationship, which is called Cartesian dualism. The dualistic nature of the mind and the body is under serious question and even dispute today by the scientific community, but Pascal does offer us a great insight. And that is our capacity for self-awareness. The neuroscientist Stephen Fleming calls it metacognition, a nice 50-cent word, which means that not only are we a thinking reed, but we can even think about our thinking. And that self-reflection has a great impact on our mental health and our physical health. What then is the relationship between our mental health and our physical health? When you visit your doctor, what does he or she see? Is it only the reed and its malady? Or is it the reed thinking, reflecting, caring, responding? My guest this morning is Dr. Jane Gagliardi, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Scientist, and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Gagliardi is board certified in internal medicine and board certified in psychiatry is currently director of the Combined Residency Training Program in Internal Medicine Psychiatry. Individuals who complete training in combined residency programs experience many opportunities to observe and think about where the body ends and the mind begins, or vice versa. Dr. Gagliardi, welcome to Del Marva today.
5: Thank you, I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And just before I get started saying whatever comes out of my mouth, I should specify that I speak my own opinions and not those of my institution.
4: Well, I appreciate that, Jane, and I'm really honored to have you on the program this morning. Thank you very much for joining me. Let me begin with your teaching. Um, I know uh, both of my children are professors. And the pandemic had a significant impact on their teaching at uh, the two universities where they work. How did the pandemic impact your teaching at um, the medical school?
5: I think that's a great question. And I think there are multiple answers that um, kind of foreshadow and underline this idea that you raised with Blaise Pascal. So I do both clinical teaching, which is while I'm taking care of patients, there are learners that include medical students, sometimes PA students, maybe pharmacy students, and then residents in medicine and or psychiatry. And we learn by taking care of patients. And then there's also the um, didactic teaching, which I think has been markedly impacted, both of them, by the viral pandemic. So um, I strongly believe and always have that if I'm going to be an excellent clinical educator, I need to be doing work on excellent clinical services. So I've always taken it as my mission to model and advocate for excellent patient care. I also think um, there are tons of threats that took place to well being and engagement for our learners and our teachers. Early in the pandemic, from the clinical perspective, um, sometimes behavioral health experts and learners were being told there's not enough PPE for you to actually go in and see patients, which not only separates the ability to talk directly to a patient and establish a human relationship but also may give you this feeling that you're unnecessary in patient care. Later on, there have been other types of threats where people are starting to question resource allocation, decisions about vaccination, decisions about masking and mitigation strategies that can give the learners on a clinical rotation kind of mixed feelings and Uh, kind of like a moral dilemma about how best to proceed with patient care. Some of them may solve that dilemma by strongly advocating to their unvaccinated patients that they really should get vaccinated and some may um, experience dysphoria or a hard time reconciling their own personal beliefs with those beliefs of their patients. For didactic teaching, perhaps like your children and definitely like my sister who is a professor of art history, I've had to learn how to use Zoom, which was really not natural to begin with, and um, had to be comfortable figuring out a lot of my didactic teaching is in small groups. And there's definitely a difference in small group teaching when some people are off camera (laughs) and um, trying to learn how to use the chat and use the annotation tools and use various strategies to keep people paying enough attention so that they can stay engaged was definitely um, took a lot of effort early in the pandemic. Um, I think the other thing, um, early on we had learners who were really care, like terrified of catching COVID or maybe giving it to their family members because way back a year and a half ago, we didn't actually know, was it contact spread? Was it respiratory particle spread? I still actually have a rubber Rubbermaid in the back of my car for the shoes that I'll wear in the hospital because I didn't want to risk bringing those germs into my house. We had students who had to turn to all virtual learning, even when they were supposed to be taking care of patients. And so in order to deal with that, we saw some really amazing examples of figuring out how to be engaged and meaningful in the mission, which was to take care of patients as safely as possible. So we found some really inspiring medical students who were doing their part by volunteering to help physicians and nurses, by um, volunteering to vaccinate people in the COVID vaccination sites, by doing whatever they could, whatever their part might be, even if they were excluded from some of the clinical locations and actual buildings where we do the didactic education. Um, For the psychiatry and med psych residents, they actually worked with a couple of faculty members and organized a screening program to try to decrease the risk of COVID 19 transmission in, in homeless shelters, which added hours. That was a volunteer effort that really added hours to their busy days, but I think provided meaning and value to their own education in a way that was beneficial to their overall well being in a really kind of calamitous time. In addition um, to the physical threat of COVID-19, there has also been more of a psychological, you might say spiritual or psychosocial threat of all sorts of things going on in society. Um, There have been politics, there have been um, kind of increasing attention and media attention to racist episodes of violence against black people. And those types of activities and the feelings that come up with them also have been in some ways what I would consider part of a pandemic. And figuring out how to help people reconcile our past with our present and how to become a truly equitable and anti-racist institution, as I know my institution is dedicated to being, has been very meaningful and not just always a straightforward path. Um, so I think we've had virus affecting people and we've had societal pandemics affecting people. Um, and I think it's been um, a time of a lot of quick growth on a steep learning curve for all of us. Jane, I'm thinking when you're
4: making uh, your, uh, your clinical rounds with, um, with your students, I'm assuming because of the pandemic, you're wearing uh, PPE and um, that, uh, how did you feel about how that separates you from both the patients and from your students? Uh, How do you overcome that communication uh,
5: barrier that all that equipment must uh, create? So, on actual COVID units, people are in full PPE, which is an N95 mask, a face shield, in some places, like a hairnet, um, a, like a gown, booties, and gloves. And that for sure, people aren't hanging around chatting in that kind of PPE. Generally speaking, when we're taking care of individuals who have COVID disease, we limit the number of minutes and the number of people at one time who are in a room um, to decrease the potential for disease spread. More broadly, in our institution, we all wear masks. We've all worn masks in the institution for the last 18 months, and there's no eating in the common spaces like we used to have. And so Even in the workroom where I'm working this week and last week on the general medicine service, it used to be on Saturdays I would bring in bagels or donuts or something to sort of create a sense of, you know, I care about you and community and now, you know, I don't want to actually have anybody take off their mask and eat in this room and we're all keeping our masks on and sitting they've moved the computers a little further apart. And so you have to try other things besides the usual um, food and smiles. I was actually reflecting yesterday how different people look. You know, if I put my mask on here, you know what I look like, here we are on Zoom, but I don't know that my learners have any idea what I actually look like. And sometimes when they take off their masks briefly, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that's what you look like under there. And so it's very interesting to see how much you can get out of somebody's eyes. I think sometimes being more explicit in asking about both the patients and the learners' well-being or, you know, sometimes on a general medicine service, there are some tragic or sort of terminal illness situations, really checking in with the younger learners, you know, how is this going for you? Boy, it really seems like a lot of your patients have tragic stories right now. Why don't we talk about how that's going for you instead of really just talking about how to get them out of the hospital and what are their labs looking like? I found that to be a useful strategy in some ways. And then yes, I think when we put on the full PPE and face mask, I actually was I maybe show you, I actually purchased some different, some some of us are resorting to different eye protection to try to be less threatening to our patients. And so this is a pair I was really happy to buy lately. It just oh, looks like a pair of glasses yeah. instead of a big old face shield. So right. I've got this and my mask on, but at least I don't have like a big alien right. face shield on.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. You don't look like a space cadet at, at, at that point. Well, let me ask you, Jane, why, why psychiatry? And um, how do, how do psychiatric and, and medical problems uh, interface? What did you see that, um, I know you're certified, as I said, in, in, in both internal medicine and psychiatry. Uh, What made you turn to, uh,
5: to psychiatry? Well, we sometimes joke that everybody who goes into behavioral health has a good reason for doing it. Um, And I believe you know my parents, so perhaps you have a deeper answer of that than I do. Really, though, I think my favorite answer to the question is like, why did I add psychiatry to my internal medicine training? Because I applied in both internal medicine programs and combined programs in medicine and psychiatry, is this... um, that there's no living human being whose body is not connected to their brain. And so having gone through the training, even if I'm even if I'm rounding on the plain general medicine service, or if I'm rounding on our psychiatry emergency department service and not one of our combined patient care services, where intentionally we're taking care of both. You know, I can't help but notice that there is an individual who has a psychology and can be motivated and might be experiencing grief from the things that we're telling them. And perhaps, and I hope that my background training in behavioral health helps me sit with distress and helps me be a more compassionate provider, even of general medical care. Uh, Because quite honestly, having spent time in the psychiatry emergency department and taking care of patients on inpatient psychiatry, there is very little that one of my inpatient general medicine patients could say to me that would actually, I mean, I may not have heard it before, but it's very unlikely to shock me. So um, for those reasons, I think the psychiatry was an important addition to internal medicine training. And the way we did the training, it's five years split between specialties. So It's pretty interesting around the third year, you really start being unable to kind of totally divorce one from the other. When you're seeing patients, even if you're rounding in the outpatient psychiatry clinic, you might be worrying about their anticoagulation for their atrial fibrillation. And you might be thinking about how their diabetes is impacting their depression. And kind of at the end of that training, um, we generally find that the combined trainees emerge with a much more uh, kind of broad and holistic view of how to take care of patients, which can sometimes extend beside, behind, you know, beyond just the medicine and psychiatric, to include social and you know things like access to medications and where are they going to go and how do we navigate this big blank space between where our medical system ends and where the patient's resources start.
4: Well, Jane, I could be totally wrong, but uh, I in my uh, in my general sense, I think of of psychologists as working with people on coping mechanisms, how to deal basically with uh, uh, with the world and with and with their problems with psychiatrists. I often think of chemical intervention um, rather than psycho, uh, psychotherapy or, or something like that. Uh, am I wrong in that, de- in that designation? Do you, I know you do uh, chemical intervention. You do that both in your internal uh, medical work and in, uh, and in uh, your psychiatric work, but what in addition, uh, in the world of psychiatry that you do you do with your patients beyond uh, chemical intervention with them?
5: Well, there's some really inspiring psychiatrists, psychologists, and neuroscientists who would say that even, um, there's a quite a bit of evidence these days that some of the psychotherapeutic interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or some of those coping strategies, also result in uh, measurable and demonstrable changes in the way the brain works. And so even there, I think sometimes we are finding ourselves needing to prescribe chemical interventions because perhaps the evidence-based psychosocial and psychological interventions aren't covered by insurance companies. And at the same time, I think while you're prescribing medications, most patients will understand this when I say it, uh, just throwing a bottle of medications at somebody isn't really necessarily gonna result in the change you're hoping to see because it's, there's a whole process in prescribing that involves considering the specific patient and the better you're able to gather their history and understand where they're coming from, including their financial limitations, their beliefs about taking medications in the first place, family history of response to medications what their actual illness is and so in psychiatry we it's all symptom based you know so we have to do a thorough evaluation of what, what symptoms are you presenting with and kind of what diagnostic categorization is most accurate to try to address you know so we can find an intervention that will help you with those symptoms and then really thinking about of the you know it's kind of a limited but large number of medications available to us for consideration in psychiatry. Of all of those, is there one or are there a class that seem like they would be recommendable in this situation? And then talking to the patient about, you know, their thoughts on those medications, counseling on expected benefits and side effects and risks and alternatives. And then really, you know, if I don't think a medication is going to work, I won't prescribe it. If I do think it's gonna work, I think it's only fair for me to say, I really expect this could be beneficial for you. So there's a whole psychotherapy that can go along with prescribing medications. On the psychiatric side, probably more so in some ways than on the inpatient medical side. But even there on the medical side, this is one of the ways I couldn't divorce my psychiatric care from my medical care. I find myself you know, always wanting to make sure my patients know why am I suggesting the things I'm suggesting? Why do they need to go for this urgent procedure? What are the diagnostic considerations? And always trying to figure out, you know, do they understand what I'm talking about? Do they have capacity to make this decision? Um, in psychiatry, we also, so psychologists in many states cannot prescribe medications. The background training for psychiatrists is medical school, and so there is more of an emphasis on pathophysiology, differential diagnosis formulation, and kind of arriving at a diagnosis and treatment recommendation. Psychology training has um, clinical psychologists do many, many hours of clinical work before they arrive at their ability to practice clinically. And they gain specific expertise in evidence-based psychotherapies, of which there are many different types, um, but not so much the pathophysiology from a body medical perspective, very likely the pathophysiology from a brain perspective. And so one other thing, psychiatrists, um, I don't happen to be one of the ones who's trained to do this, but electric. Convulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine infusions, other neuromodulatory um, experiences that actually have a high degree of evidence for benefit. Those are also things that we can recommend and sometimes, depending on the psychiatrist, administer or refer for consultation. Jane, can
4: you give me an example of where the the psychiatry uh, plays a role in intervening in a malady or or a, or a sickness that someone has.
5: Yeah. So the mind body connection, some of us would say, is almost uh, it's like artificially induced. So I think I had shared with you before. There are some examples. Like I've had patients come in and they're tired and lethargic and they kind of haven't been eating and they've lost weight and they seem depressed and you know the average kind of the psychiatric assessment is melancholic depression and um, it could be and there could be appropriate treatments for that and let's say that patient seems to have melancholic depression with psychotic features and you send them for electroconvulsive therapy. And then you notice that they can't get it because every time they try to induce anesthesia, their blood pressure goes really, really low. Then you start thinking like, what things on the medical realm can cause all of these symptoms? And then you maybe think, oh, I wonder if it's adrenal insufficiency. I wonder if there's an endocrine reason that this person is actually having these symptoms or having this reaction. So in some ways, a lot of endocrine disorders can present with behavioral symptoms like adrenal insufficiency Hyperthyroidism, people can present with um, panic attacks or a lot of anxiety or a bunch of weight loss. They might seem manic. Hypothyroidism, people seem depressed and lethargic and they might kind of puff up and seem demented. There are more subtle connections between some other medical diseases in the psychiatric presentations. And then there are some really, um, there's a wonderful book called Brain on Fire by Susanna Cahalan, which talks about her own personal experiences with Um, NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis. And she initially was thought to be um, maybe having bipolar disorder, maybe to be using too many substances. And it turned out she had a diagnosable and treatable autoimmune brain disorder um, that was making her act as if she was manic and having a bipolar episode. And so, um, you know, in that book, she talks very compellingly about the importance of physicians and healthcare providers who will listen to the patient and what they're saying and take them at full value, which I think is a strength in psychiatric training is to really learn how to listen and believe the patient. Whereas I think sometimes in time-limited diagnostic, almost sometimes people worry that they're algorithmically based. Those kind of the cognitive processes that lead us to sort of assumptions may be tempted to take over, especially if time is limited and resources are constrained. So looks like bipolar disorder might, might be bipolar disorder, but like, wait a minute, she's telling me she's never had bipolar disorder. Nobody in her family has bipolar disorder. She doesn't actually use drugs. There's some abnormalities on the brain waves on the EEG, like maybe it's not bipolar disorder. What else could it be? how do you
4: instill in your students a sense of holistic medicine the fact that they're that they are or, or do you even need to there's a there's a question maybe they're fine doing it the way they are but this is a human being who has walked in here with all kinds of mental issues going on, even normal, as well as their physical ailment. So when you work with your students, how do you get them to see that that this is a complete person? And I'm and I'm seeing their the interface also between psychiatry and, uh, and and medicine?
5: Yeah, I do think um, for me, it's hard not to see my patients as people. I come from a non-medical family and I can kind of, it's like you go from being like a regular person to being a healthcare provider. And I remember um, for better or for worse, I remember a lot um, from, like the way things felt before I knew some of this medical information. And so I think it's really important to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try to empathize with what it is they may be experiencing. And to do that, you have to gather enough information, you know, so that you're not just making assumptions. So with my learners, I think they, this is why I think clinical education bedside rounding, seeing the patients together is super important um, because, you know, I'm quite likely, if I sense that one of the learners is like, okay, we've checked that box, we've checked that box, we're all ready to go. I might say, so, Mr. Visitor in the chair, what's your wife supposed to be like? Can you give me an idea of when she's not altered and delirious? how she spends her day, or perhaps when I'm meeting a new patient and we've finished up the official history taking that the students have done, I might stop and ask, you know, can you please, I I hear you using some terminology that makes me question, are you a medical professional too? Can you tell me a little bit about your background? How many babies did you have? You know, and so rather than just being social history questions that help me complete a template, I'm really interested in that person so that I can best match my approach to helping them manage their disease. And I think that's a powerful way of teaching the learners. I think the vast majority of younger students that I've seen and early residents are quite dedicated to patient care and to advocacy and to being complete and compassionate and thorough doctors. I think there is a um, kind of another pandemic of burnout, especially among medical professionals that I believe comes from moral injury, seeing what patients need, seeing what the system can provide them and seeing how that's a mismatch and having to collude with the system, in my opinion, is a morally injurious prospect that can accelerate burnout. And then you start hearing people say things, I've heard this sometimes from people, this patient's just in the emergency department for psychiatric evaluation because they want to have a place to sleep and they want to have food. And I'm now at the point, you know, um, 18 years post-completion of my residency, where I can say, boy, can you imagine how hard somebody's life might be if being in this unpleasant locked area in our emergency department is the best option they have right now. And so I think we need to figure out how we can help with that. And so those things, I think calling attention to those types of situations and having real human and authentic interactions with patients in front of learners is super important.
4: Well, Jane, I wanna thank you very, very much for coming on the program today. Uh, the, the discussion I believe is incredibly valuable uh, for uh, our listening audience. And uh, thank you uh, very much. I'm I'm honored that uh, that you were here. And uh, to our listeners, I want to thank all of you for listening this morning. This is Delmarva today. I'm your host. Harold Wilson.